Good morning. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who, who were before you. Salt and light, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarita. Let's just pray um, as we open God's word together. Father God, we thank you um, for your words that you have given us timeless throughout generations. We pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might speak into our hearts and into our minds. And Lord, that we might take something away from you this morning that we would use in our lives, that we may serve you um, to the best of our abilities and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in your strong name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is an opportunity. If there are any uh, children amongst us, we've got some activity packs at the back there. If you haven't picked one up already, feel free to go and grab one of those. There's some crafts and some word searches and some coloring and goodness knows what else to do. If you're not a child and you fancy doing a little bit of craft this morning while I'm talking, we're not going to judge you. Feel free. Um, it's great to have the children in here with us, actually. Often they're out um, and they've got their own activities um, out through the back of um, church, but it's wonderful as a church family here, all generations together this morning. Please don't worry if they make any noise at all. We're happy to be here together as family. There's a kind of a small crush area at the back if you want to. If you really need um, a bit of space to run around the gardens just through these glass doors to the left here, feel free to go out there. That's the children, that's not the adults. Climbing frames for afterwards for the adults. Um, okay. So we are in the um, Gospel of Matthew. We're going through a sermon series um, at the moment in Matthew's Gospel. We've got up to chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. We've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They really talk about uh, similar things, similar themes. They're talking about Jesus' life and his teachings, but they have a slightly different um, angle. They each have a sort of a different bent on what's going on. It's a bit like, I don't know, four newspapers or four writers speaking about the same event and all coming from a slightly different angle because they want to communicate something differently to you. Um, the Gospel of Mark is kind of wanting to communicate um, Jesus as the, as the suffering servant and the Son of God, and it's more of a gospel that's a bit more action-packed, a little bit more story-like as you read it. Luke is a, a gospel which is kind of more historical, a bit more journalistic, talks about things in a chronological order, and it's about um, writing to establish um, believers in the teaching of Jesus. And John is looking to be kind of maybe a persuasive um, type of gospel. It's written to show the miracles um, of Jesus so that those who read the story will believe in him and 
John's account is often looking to show uh, the divine nature of Jesus Christ being God. But the gospel we're looking at is Matthew. And and as Joe has talked about in the last few weeks, um, Matthew takes great care to show how Jesus fulfills the prophecies that have been made um, about him through uh, the Old Testament especially, especially focusing on his role as a Messiah um, and the promised king descended from David. And um, Joe has talked about in, in, the, uh, in the talks uh, leading up to this about kind of the surprising nature of things within Matthew, the surprising um, family tree of Jesus, the surprising uh, birth story, the surprising uh, place where he chose to settle, his surprising baptism, um, his surprising time in the wilderness. And last week he talked about a surprising start to his preaching ministry where he talked about repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, a kingdom that is totally upside down and back to front from what we would understand a human kingdom to be all about. But now we move um, on to a portion of gospel that's kind of traditionally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It was Jesus talking to his disciples and people around him in the form of perhaps what we would call a sermon, and surprise, surprise, he was up on a mountain. Therefore, Sermon on the Mount, not rocket science. Um, And it starts with a section at the beginning of chapter 5 called the Beatitudes, which you may have um, sort of heard about before. All the blesseds, the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the cheesemakers. Just a little one for people who get that one. That's not in the Bible, don't worry. And we're actually going to just skip over that bit because um, we're really pleased that Bishop Emma is going to be with us in a couple of weeks' time, and she wanted to preach on that um, section. So we're skipping over that. She's going to come back to the Beatitudes. So come back in a couple of weeks' time and hear about stuff from the beginning of chapter 5. But this this week, we're looking briefly at um, the, uh, the rest of that chapter where Jesus uses two metaphors. He talks about um, us being the disciples, being the salt um, of the earth, and he talks about being the light of the world. So being the salt of the earth, in the ancient Near East at the time that Jesus was speaking, salt would have been used for um, a number of different things. It might have been used as a cleansing agent um, in a sort of a slightly different form. Salt was uh, sometimes used as a, a fertilizer, but its main uses would have been both as a seasoning and probably more commonly it would have been known as a preservative And this is how the original hearers would have heard and likely understood this metaphor of being salt as being a preservative. Because in Jesus' day, obviously there weren't, as we would have, fridges um, and freezers and vacuum packaging and artificial preservatives. And they certainly didn't have use-by dates um, on their food. Um, Use-by dates, very useful. My wife goes by them. She goes to the fridge. She'll say to me, John... The yogurt is past its use-by date. I go, has it turned blue? Does it smell a little bit funky? No? Then we're okay. Let's go with it after that. Two different, two different ways of approaching use-by dates. I won't say which is uh, the best way to do. But if you wanted to preserve a piece of meat or fish in Jesus' day, so it didn't immediately go bad and have to be thrown out, you'd have to put it in a container, and you'd then pack that container um, with salt. 
Salt reduces the moisture of the meat or the fish and therefore inhibits bacteria. Therefore, um, it preserves it um, for a period of time, something like that. They wouldn't have had glass dishes, um, obviously, in those days, but they would have covered, um, covered their produce up. And we know we've got historical evidence that the Romans used to do it. They used to, have, um, they used to have salting tubs that they'd put bacon and things like that in to preserve it. The ancient Egyptians did the same. They had tubs that they would, uh, they would put things in salt. So it was well known amongst the cultures um, of that time um, that salt was used um, to stop decay and to stop deterioration. So why is Jesus telling his disciples that they are to be preservative, like salt? Well, I think it's got something to do with the natural tendency in general for everything in life to decay or to deteriorate without outside intervention of some kind. And we see this in um, many areas of our life. We see it in terms of our own physical bodies. We're well aware that our bodies decay and deteriorate over time, some more than others. I managed to pull a muscle in the back of my leg today, uh, this week, getting up on a stool at the breakfast bar, of all things. I would like to say I was playing football or rugby or something like that, but no, sitting on a stool was enough to put me in agony for the rest of the day. I'm very well aware that my body is decaying and deteriorating. And we intervene with it and we care for our bodies and we try and have healthy routines, but we know that eventually we are all going to end up as the ultimate statistic, one out of one people pass away. It's not just our physical health, but our mental health as well. I think we've come to realize, especially um, in recent years, that our mental health is very easily subject um, to deterioration if we're not careful. You often hear people say, now I'm doing this, I'm taking this action because of my mental health. Our nature around us, plant life, the cut flowers that I buy regularly for my wife. Yes, the yo's that you know me, that is um, not quite true. But they don't take long before they deteriorate and they decay. That's why I don't buy them for it. What's the point, you know? Seven days later, it's gone, isn't it? Oh, well, box of chocolates. Something like that. Oh, they're gone as well, anyway, even quicker. Um, the garden that I like to tend, if I don't put work into it, then it soon deteriorates and it decays and the beauty is lost because of the weeds that grow up all around it. We know that relationships have a tendency to deteriorate when we don't intervene, when we don't work at them. How many of us can think of a friendship which has deteriorated over time because we simply haven't put the effort into preserving it and maintaining it? And for those of us that are married or in long-term relationships, we know it doesn't take much for a relationship to decline if we aren't prepared to work at it and preserve it. And what about our society in general? A few hundred years ago, the Enlightenment told us that human beings would continue to evolve. To evolve. We would move on to greater and greater and higher things, and society would do likewise. Well, maybe in some aspects 
we have, but you only have to scroll through the front page of your favorite news website to question that assumption. We're fortunate to live in a wealthy, in a well-educated, in a progressive society here in the UK. But we live in a society where a recent study showed that 7% of our children have attempted to take their own life before the age of 17. And one in four of them have tried to self-harm in some way. Without intervention, so many things in life are prone to, de to decay and deterioration. And I can almost hear you thinking, boy, I'm really glad that I dragged myself out of bed this morning to come to All Souls to hear John standing here and depressing us all and talking that everything is decaying and deteriorating. Well, hopefully there's some good news as well. Jesus is saying to his disciples that things don't have to be that way. You are the salt of the earth. Followers near of Christ need to be salt in this world in which they live. We're here to help things to stay fresh, to stay wholesome, to stay beautiful, to help prevent decay and deterioration in the things that we see around us. As followers of Jesus, we're there to work, to preserve the friendships and our relationships and to walk alongside those and to help those that are struggling to do that. As followers of Jesus, we're there to help to preserve and protect our young people as they attempt to negotiate their way through a confusing and anxiety-filled period of growing up together. As followers of Jesus, we're there to preserve the good and the wholesome and the beautiful things that we see in our society and the people around us and to encourage others who do likewise. And I don't want to steal Bishop Emma's thunder from a couple of weeks hence, but going back to the first few verses of this chapter, if our lives conform to the norms of what we read about at the beginning of this chapter, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're merciful, if we're pure in heart, if we endeavor to be peacemakers, then we can't help but be an influence for good in our families and in our communities and our workplaces and our society in general. And this is what Jesus called his followers to be. This is what Jesus calls you and me to be. And in verse 13, Jesus then goes on to make a slightly strange statement about salt losing its saltiness. He says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Well, how can salt lose its saltiness? We're not entirely sure what this verse actually means. In the original, in the Greek, there, the word for losing its saltiness is actually more a word to do with stupidity. The salt has become stupid, which might be a mistranslation of the word insipid, which means it's losing its saltiness. We don't really know. Our other curate, Mike, who's not there this week, is a great Greek scholar. Okay, If you want to know a bit more about what this really means, talk to Mike. He'd love to talk to you about Greek, honestly. You might not talk to him again after that bit, but there you go. He would love to speak to that. When he's here around next week, do talk to him about that. Ask him about the Greek for this stuff. He'll, he'll go on forever about it, I'm sure. But 
Salt can't really lose its saltiness. It's a stable compound, salt is. Salt, saltiness, is the reason that salt exists. And I think this might be what Jesus is saying, very simply, that as followers of him, that's our reason to exist. Our raison d'etre, if you like, for our French friends over there, to bring flavor, to help bring, to help prevent decay, to restore beauty in the world in which we live, to help to bring God's kingdom on earth as Matthew is reminding us all the way through this gospel to share the love of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit with those around us in both word and deed. That's our reason to be. That's why salt is salty. That's why we're there as followers of Jesus. So then moving on to his second metaphor, Jesus says that being salt is not the only thing. We need to be the light of the world too. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in this house. Again, this uh, metaphor related to an object We've been very familiar to Jesus. Uh, listeners, every household would have had um, at least one clay lamp filled with oil with a wick in the end of it, probably a little bit bigger than the one that we've got there. But they would light one of those and hang it on a lampstand. And many houses would only have had one room, so this one lamp that was in the middle, hung up high, would have provided light um, for the whole home. And the bowl that um, Jesus talks about, putting a lamp under a bowl, that was a, that was a well-known kind of a, a word for a big measuring basket. They would have used it to measure out dry ingredients such as wheat. And Jesus' hearers would have been in instant agreement of what he was saying here. No one goes to the trouble of lighting a lamp and then sticking a great big basket over the top of it. The lamp has got no use at all at that point. You're wasting your time doing that. You know, it's sometimes difficult to appreciate what it is to be in a complete darkness um, like um, they would have been aware of um, in Jesus' day, especially living in, in London, as we do, and the light pollution we have. We very rarely are completely dark. I remember a time when um, I was visiting my uncle and aunt who lived in Dubai. This was 20-plus years ago. Um, they'd lived out there for a long time. They moved out there... Um, before it was popular and before it had grown up. And we went out just to visit them, uh, myself and my wife. And one uh, afternoon, uh, my uncle and aunt took us out in their Jeep out into the desert, way out into the desert, a long way out to have a barbecue. Not quite sure we went so far, but we went out into the middle of the desert to, to have a barbecue. And um, we traveled sort of down a road, which became a sort of a sand track, and then eventually just across the sand and into the middle of the desert. And when we were parking up the Jeep, my uncle took forever to park this Jeep up in the middle of nowhere, just surrounded by sand everywhere. It took forever to line it up and to go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and get it in a straight line. It's like, I wasn't sure what was going on, really. There was nothing he was going to crash into out here. There's nothing out there. And he spent forever. And in the end, my curiosity, curiosity got the better of me. I said, Uncle, why are you spending so much time lining this car up? And he said, well, you'll see, in a couple of hours' time, the sun will go down. We've got a cloudy day today. There'll be no moon. There'll be no stars. We're going to be in pitch darkness 
And if I don't line this car up and get it exactly straight on the way back, we're going to end up going down a dune or we're going to crash into something, some rocks or something like that. I have to have it in a direct line so that we can get back across the sand, find the road and find our way home. And he was right. In a couple of hours' time, pitch black. Never known anything like it in my life before. Literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face like that. And we had our barbecue and we got in the car and we headed back and he went in the straight line, eventually we hit the road, and then in the distance you could see the lights of the suburbs um, of the city ahead of us that we headed towards to find our way back. The people listening to Jesus' words would have been very aware of this um, element of darkness, and they would have known what a lamp was for. It was there to bring light. It was there to pierce the darkness. It could be said to drive the darkness away. After all, Darkness is simply the absence of light. And the reason for being, the raison d'etre for light is to shine. It would be ridiculous to light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. It's there to shine, it's there to illuminate, it's there to guide, it's there to demonstrate the presence of life. And there's four things about the lamp briefly that I just want to mention that Jesus talks about that I think we can take away. Firstly, for a lamp, it needs to be lit. It's not its own light shining, but it needs to be lit from another source. And if we are to be lights, if we are to be lamps shining in this world, then we need to be lit. Jesus says here, you are the light of the world, but in John, he talks about himself and he says, I am the light of the world. We need to be lit by Christ. We need to experience God's love for us in a real, in a personal way, to come before him, to acknowledge where we stand before him, to accept him, to enter into a right relationship with him and through the power of his Holy Spirit, light that lamp within us to become followers of Christ so that we can in turn shine for him. We need to be lit. A lamp exposes decay and darkness, as we've already spoken about, in the same way that we can be salt to preserve the beauty of relationships and society. We're to be a light that exposes darkness and decay where we find it in our world. Thirdly, light brings joy by illuminating beauty. Just as salt is not just a preservative, but it's a seasoning as well, it brings out the great taste in things. Light is beautiful because it can shine on beautiful things. It shows up the beauty of the things that it shines on. Being salt and being light isn't about being a killjoy or about being a wet blanket. Although shining God's light can show up corruption and decay, and it should do, we should also be the joy of a particular group that we're in because of what our light can show up. We as Christians, as followers of Christ, should be the stabling, stabilizing influence in our communities and in our relationships. We can be the glue in our office or in, or in work environment because 
as a Christian, we're not looking at a situation to see what's the best that we can get out for it for ourselves. But instead, how can I bring the best out of this organization? How can I bring the best out of these people around me? We can encourage others and help to light up the beauty around us. So we need to be lit. We expose decay and darkness. We bring joy by illuminating beauty. And finally, we work together, not just as individuals, but as all of God's people. Jesus talks here about a town being built on a hill cannot be hidden, a town that's lit up, a great city with lights that shine out for miles around. To be the light of the world means that we work together. Individually, we get involved with people's lives and show the beauty of Christ, but actually it's only as we live out our faith in a group that the world can see who Christ is and that the church isn't just a private members club, but we're a colony, we're a city, we're a new humanity where people can see what it means to follow Jesus and to live lives under the lordship of Christ. And finally, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Ultimately, this is why we're living this way. So that people might glorify our Father in heaven. We're here to point people towards God. We're here to point people towards Jesus. And just like Matthew was trying to do throughout his gospel, we're pointing people towards the King. And our good deeds aren't just about being nice and kind to one another, although hopefully we're known as nice and kind people, but it's amongst other things about bringing God's kingdom near through striving for social justice in our societies. Over the years, the gospel of Christ has transformed his followers in such a way that they have become light in this world with prison reform and medical care, trade unions, abolition of slavery, abolition of child labor, establishment of orphanages. All these areas through time, followers of Jesus have spearheaded change, driving out darkness and bringing the light of Christ into this world. So am I prepared to take hold of this exciting invitation that Jesus has given us to come and follow him? Am I able to take hold of this invitation in so doing, make a difference in the world that I live in by being salt and being light?